Um, today, we're going to be talking about give thanks for a better hope and a better covenant out of Hebrews 7 and 8, two chapters. Okay, and I'm starting us off with a Shakespeare quote. And here it is. I can no other answer make but thanks and thanks and ever thanks. Now, I want to tell you that I did not, this quote comes out of Twelfth Night, and I didn't get the quote by reading Shakespeare. And I want to tell you where I got it. This past Christmas, Hickman and I went to the prairie for two weeks and a day. And we um, went to my grandson's wedding in Nebraska, and then we went hiking in Wyoming, and then we came back to Nebraska for Christmas. And along the way, I bought this book. And um, if you can see, I thought, how much better we have it. She's pushing a wheelbarrow. It's got a huge load of big stones, and she is great with a child. And so the, the author of this book is a direct descendant of women who set, settled the Kansas Territory. And she used the Shakespeare quote to talk about how she feels about her relatives. Now, I have a greater appreciation for pioneer women from being on the prairie, and I think probably a lot of you have a greater appreciation for pioneer women who never have power. But I would never use that quote for how I feel about pioneer women. But when I read the quote, I thought, that's it. That's how I feel about Hebrews 7 and 8. And what God has given us, and how much better is our hope, and how much better is our covenant. And it seemed when I read it, I just felt like my gratitude was deeper. And I thought, I don't have enough words. I don't have enough time to thank him. But this quote, thanks and thanks and ever thanks. So it's, it's a life of thanks to him. And so we have four things that we are going to thank him for today. Give thanks for a high priest who is perfect and permanent. Give thanks for a sacrifice who was sinless and sufficient. Give thanks for a covenant that is spotless and final. Give thanks for examples that are timeless and timely. And so those are our four things we're going to go through today. So first of all, our high priest, he's perfect and permanent. Our high priest, Jesus, was established by an oath of God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. In this messianic psalm, David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God made a solemn oath establishing the priesthood of the Messiah, his son. And it was a priesthood that would be under the order of Melchizedek. So who was Melchizedek? And why is he so important? 
Well, I just want to tell you that I stand with the great majority of theologians who believe that Melchizedek is a type who represents Christ and in particular the type of priesthood that Christ would have. Now, if you're new to, to types, a type is a picture or a prefigure in the Old Testament of a person or maybe a practice that is going to be a reality in the New Testament. And the, the realities in the New Testament are called antitypes. And the type is not necessarily perfect, it's just a picture. And so Noah's Ark would be a type. It was a picture of Christ. They went into the ark and they were saved. Or what about when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac? We have a picture of Christ, but he didn't actually do it. So the type breaks down. Um, but it just is God saying something's coming in the New Testament. And here's a picture of it. So in the writer of Hebrews had the Genesis 14 account of Melchizedek. He had facts about the Levitical priesthood. He had God's oath in Psalm 110 and the life of Christ, all these four things. He takes to make this confusing comparison. <laughs> now, um, even Jim Hawkins said the author's logic can be difficult to follow in this section. Thanks, Jim. It, it, it was difficult for me. I can say that. But um, we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, the writer says, this Melchizedek, king of Salem. And so he gives, first of all, he gives him a name. Now when we see pre-incarnate Christ showing up, he's given a title. He's called the angel of the Lord, the Lord, the commander of the army of the Lord. And he's not referred to by specific places or occupations. And another thing we have is that Christ and Melchizedek are being compared. And the, the word like is used. And you need two things to compare. So I think, I just think he's a type of Christ. And um, we may find out in heaven that he's not. <laughs> but anyway, it, um, that's just, that just seems, seems right. So let's look. I'm going to mention six ways that Melchizedek pictures Christ. First of all, his name means king of righteousness, and he's king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, um, the city of Jerusalem, Mount Peace. So we see right there righteousness and peace and the order that they're given. You see, when we, we read scripture, it's so exciting to know that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is even careful to give us those words in order because righteousness comes before peace. And, um, and so that's the first, first thing. And then the second thing, he is a priest of God Most High. 
Now this means that his priesthood was not limited to Israel or any other nation. It was broader, which points to Jesus, whose priesthood includes those of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. His priesthood was not based on his genealogy. Genesis is really big on genealogy, but it's silent about his. Does that mean he didn't have a father or mother? No, they're just not important because he did not become a priest because of who his father was. He became a priest because he was a priest of God. So, now this, um, he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. The Levitical priesthood was generations away. But um, it might not be, and that might not be a really burning question to us today, that he was, wasn't from the tribe of Levi. But in the time of Hebrews, when you had these new Jewish Christians that were witnessing to Jewish brethren and friends, they were going to go, well, how could you have a priest that's not from the tribe of Levi? So do you see how important it was that God established him by this oath in Psalm 110? So they could go back and say, no, he's of another order. So anyway, we know that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and that was the kingly tribe. And interestingly enough, I read this, um, once the Levitical priesthood was established, if someone became a priest, they couldn't be a king. You couldn't be both, okay? But Jesus was both. He was priest and king. Okay, now, um, the death of Melchizedek is not mentioned because he's prefiguring the fact that Jesus' priesthood will be permanent based on his power of an endless life. Melchizedek was greater than Abram. He blessed Abram. Abram paid him tithes. Um, I think that, you know, she explained that well. The, the lesser is blessed by the greater, and the tithes are paid from the lesser to the greater. So it's just meaning that Melchizedek was greater than our patriarch, just as Jesus is. And, um, that, did you catch that comment about Levi being in the loins of Abraham? <laughs> that they believed the seed was there. And I, and I like that. I think I believe that too. Okay. Um, he served Abraham a sacred meal, which reminds us of Jesus at the Last Supper when he took the blood of the new covenant. Okay. Now, as our high priest... He, Jesus has work that he has finished, and he has work that is unfinished. And I put it like that because I thought, wait a minute, work that is unfinished? Well, it's true. He finished the work on the cross. He said it is finished. He had made the offering for our salvation, the once and all complete offering from sin. And that part of his work was finished. But his unfinished work goes on today. It's going on right now. He is exercising his priesthood in heaven in the true tabernacle. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He ever lives to make intercession for us. 
and his work as intercessor will not be finished as long as one of his redeemed is in need of his help. Now that is a great comfort to me. This very moment, Jesus is interceding for us. He's claiming the fulfillment of covenant promises for his children. Now, um, as I begin to look at him as intercessor, I realize that a lot of my theology comes from that wonderful song that we sing before the throne of God. Y'all know that song? Well, you know how it goes. My name is written on his heart. My name is graven on his hands. Well, I look for a scripture to back that up, and I just didn't find one. I found, I know the idea is there. I know we, I know he has us on his heart, but every time that I look for some New Testament scripture to say, my name is written on his heart, because you know I'm thinking, when we go to heaven, can we say, show me my name? <laughs> Do you know? And so everything um, put into this picture of the high priest, um, and, and, and I love it. And you know, he has the, the breastplate and the 12 stones, and each, there was a name of one of the 12 tribes inscribed on each one of the stones. And so when he went in before the Lord, the priest had the children of Israel on his heart. And that's where that comes from. And I, I don't think the concept is wrong. I just wanted to tell you that. You know. Okay, and the graven on his hands, that comes out of Isaiah 49. And um, I am not even sure that's figurative or real. But we know, what we know, okay, is how important we are to him. We know our name is before the throne. And we know from John 10, 3 that he knows his sheep by name. And we know, we know that he has us on his heart. Now, um... When I was being blown away on the prairie in Wyoming, we were spending the night in a hotel in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so I was awakened in the night by the howling of the wind. And I just lay there and I had this series of thoughts. And the first one was Laura Ingalls Wilder and how she described the blizzards in Little House on the Prairie. And then I had this thought that the hotel was moving. <laughs> and I thought, well, I guess I, I think I remember from somewhere that buildings move, that they're designed. So I thought, I guess that's okay. <laughs> well, then I had this thought about when we were driving um, on a three-hour stretch of road from St. Joseph, Missouri to Lincoln, Nebraska. We saw, we counted them, 10 trucks. The, these trucks, they just, you know, blow over on their side from the wind. And so I, I had that thought of those trucks and I thought, this hotel is shaped just like a truck. <laughs> and what is to keep the hotel from doing? 
And so I thought, my intercessor, my intercessor, he's before the throne right now. My name, my name is before that throne. And he pleads for me. And if it's a good thing for this hotel to stay on the ground, I'll have it. And so I just, I just want to tell you that I lay there and I thought, I'm important to God. I am important. I'm a nobody here at this hotel. And my name is before the throne of God. And then I thought, I'm protected. I felt loved. I felt blanketed in peace. And the next thing I knew, it was morning. And Hickman came out of the bathroom and he said, you won't believe this. The water in the toilet is blowing. <laughs> and it was just, do you know? So, okay. All right. Number two. <laughs> We're going to give thanks for his sacrifice that was sinless and sufficient. Jesus offered of himself as the perfect once and for all sacrifice. It satisfied the wrath of God for all time. It wiped away sin. Under the Old Covenant, all the priests on their assigned days would take the sacrifices and offerings for sin from the people and place them on the altar. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. Ceremoniously cleansed, he um, even had special clothes he wore. It was a long process with the scapegoat. And finally, there came the point the blood um, was taken into the Holy of Holies. And this is in Leviticus 16. And twice in this chapter, it said Aaron needed to be really careful to make sure that the incense was covering the mercy seat, lest he die. And there's another place that said, you know, be careful to do this, lest he die. And these people were counting on this sinful man to be accepted by God so their sin could be covered for a year. That's the best they had. I mean, that's, that's what they had under Old Covenant. If Aaron was accepted, then the nation of Israel was accepted. It all hinged on this priest. And that's a great picture for us because our acceptance depends on a sinless man who's made that once and for all sacrifice. You see how much better we have it? What about the next day after the Day of Atonement when they sinned again and the sacrifices began again? What about their heart sins and their, their bad thoughts? And um, yeah, we have a better hope. Jesus Christ was sinless. Our better hope is in the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That's why he could make that once and for all voluntary sacrifice. Now, um, he was not a victim. 
And I thank Cole Huffman for teaching me that. He went willingly as our sacrifice for sin. And he offered up himself. In this verse, we see a dual picture of Jesus as high priest. He was the offerer. He offered up himself. He was the offering. His offering was accepted once and for all, and we're accepted because of him. The third thing, we give thanks for a covenant that is faultless and final. The old covenant failed. Even though it told us what was sin and what to do to please God, it couldn't give us the power to do it. What good does it do to know that stealing is wrong if we don't have the power to stop stealing? It was weak. It was useless. It made nothing perfect. Now, God's laws were good in and of themselves. But the fault lay in the inability of the people to be able to keep the law. So God gave a better covenant. And we get to take part in this covenant even if we don't have a drop of Jewish blood. Um, our better hope and our right to take part in this better covenant is based on our right standing with God because of what Christ did. If the blood of Christ has been applied to us through salvation, we're part of this covenant. Now, in Jeremiah, we have this very long quote. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> in Hebrews 8, we have this long quote from Jeremiah. And um, this is the longest Old Testament quote given in the New Testament. And it basically tells us that this covenant was made by God. Now, God says, here's my covenant. You can accept it or you can reject it, but we don't negotiate it. We don't come to God on his terms. He's made the covenant. Okay? Now, the covenant is mediated and guaranteed by Jesus. He pretty much does it all. He's our go-between, and he's the one that keeps the covenant, covenant when we default on it. And we have all defaulted on our covenant, haven't we? And that's why we need him. He stands in for us. When we, are, when we sin, we do all those things that we do. This covenant has promised blessings for us, and we're going to talk about three of them in a minute. But first of all, I want to just tell you that it made the old covenant obsolete. Okay, now let's look at the promised blessings. First of all, God said, I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it in their hearts. What kind of heart can God write a law on? Well, it looks like he's going to have to give us a new heart. And that's part of this covenant. He, the law that was everything that was external is being placed internally. So we carry it around in our hearts. 
Another thing it gives us is a new relationship. We can know God. Not just about Him. We can know Him and we can draw near to Him. It gives us full forgiveness. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. It just really always amazes me that Jesus Christ died for sin that I haven't yet done. Alright, now, I want to ask you, are you living in the light of these promised blessings? Are you living as a new covenant Christian? These things are our birthright as believers. This new heart, the new relationship, and full forgiveness. Last Saturday, I had my daughter's family in there. 70-pound dog at my house. And so um, my grandchildren loved to cook, and Nora wanted to make muffins. And she said, do you have blueberries? And I said, no, well, I actually did. I just didn't know it. But anyway, um, she said, I'm going to make cinnamon muffins. And so my daughter was looking up a recipe, and she said, oh, this recipe takes shortening. And I said, I have some shortening. And so I went, and I got it out of the fridge, and I, I said, you know, I've had this shortening a long time. You should probably check the expiration date. 2018. <laughs> and so my daughter said, Mom, don't be one of those old people that won't throw away their expired food. And so I ran to the garbage and I threw away the shortening. And girls, that's what we need to do with the old covenant. It's expired. It's obsolete. And why? Why do I find myself winning? Even preparing for this lesson, I got so underperformance that it had to be right. It had to be good. That I couldn't let cricket down. I couldn't let y'all down. I couldn't let God down. You know, and I just um, just got right out of grace there. Okay. So um, let's look um, at our New Testament mindset for these blessings. First of all, a new heart. You know, I tried a long time to be a Christian without a new heart, and I was a miserable failure. And recently I was talking with someone who has always said she's a Christian, but there wasn't a desire to turn from sin. Now, I just thought, you know, as we counsel people, as we mentor people, even as we look at ourselves, we need to look for those signs of a new heart because if we just slap the law on someone who doesn't have that new heart, they're, they're not going to be able to do it. Now, what, what characterizes a new heart? A love for God. We can't work that up on our own. How about the desire to obey His commands? When Jesus gave us that new heart, somehow we were able to go from, I should do this, to, I want to do this. 
It's a great heart changer. Okay? And the new heart has the ability to bend our will to His. We're given the Holy Spirit's indwelling, and it results in a power to keep God's commandments. Not perfectly. That's why Jesus guarantees our heart. But this change happens in a heart. We, we find ourselves caring about lost people. We find ourselves weeping over suffering, just things that, that we know did not result with us. He just has given a new What about the new relationship? When the work on the cross was finished, the curtain that had sealed off the Holy of Holies was supernaturally torn from top to bottom. God was telling us that the way was open. The old curtain said, keep out. Only the high priest and only once a year. The torn curtain said, draw near. Jesus made that way for us to draw near. And this command to draw near is in that Greek tense, which means keep on drawing near. We just don't do it once. We keep doing it over and over. Why? Why is it so important? Are you close to God today? Jesus died to give us that access. And if we're not close to God, then we're not in our rightful place. If we're not living in our birthright, we need to just be angry at what the devil's doing. And I can get old covenant right here. I can't, I can't meet with God today because I didn't do it yesterday. He's not going to want me to show up. I don't deserve to. I, and I just get right there. It doesn't depend on me. I can draw near to God when I am wretched because of what Jesus did. Now, why do we need to draw near? Why we must draw near? We need to let Jesus satisfy our hearts so we're not running to the we need his direction for our lives. We need to hear him say, this is the way, walk in it. We need to hear how we can please him and how we can further his kingdom here on earth. And we need to know if we're walking outside of his will because if we're not drawing near and getting our direction from him, the best thing we have is a frustrated life. We're just digging out of one nest to get into another one. We need to draw near. The third benefit is full forgiveness. And let me just ask you, are you burdened by a load of guilt today? That is old covenant. Full forgiveness. Confess our sin and claim that forgiveness and do whatever you need to do to make it right. Okay. Now we're going to go to point four, and I am not even sure what time we're supposed to be done. Okay. Hmm? What? Five minutes. Five minutes? Okay, we can do it, I think. All right. Um, in this last section, I'm going to take us back to Genesis 14. 
where we have this beautiful account of Melchizedek and Abram, or Abraham. And the context is that in Genesis 14:4, Abraham has heard that his his says his brother Lot. Now we know that Lot's his nephew, but I think that might mean spiritual brother. Um, Lot had been taken captive. So when Abraham heard this, he gathered all his trained soldiers and he went to rescue him. Now, in Jim Fleming's shepherdology class, that's one of the first things we learned. When we have a brother or sister that's taken captive by the enemy, what does a shepherd do? He goes after him. He goes to get him, to rescue him from the enemy. That's what our good shepherd does for us. And so Abraham here is picturing what Jesus does for his sheep in this, um, in this account. And so Abraham defeated this group of kings. He rescued Lot. He took the school. And he's headed home. This is when Melchizedek meets him. And, it, and he gives him a blessing. And he says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, God Most High is the name for El Elyon. And that's the first mention of this wonderful name in Scripture by Melchizedek. It means the extremely exalted sovereign high God from where which we get sovereign Lord. Now, Abraham responds to this by giving him a tithe of all, all the spoil. It looks like he didn't even stop to calculate expenses or anything like that. So um, that's the first mention we have of tithing. How did Abraham know to tithe? I mean, I don't know. I, was it just as hard? It seems to be. The first mention of El Elyon and tithing. Now, the next thing Abraham does is turn to the king of Sodom and gives him this name of El Elyon. He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And I don't need anything from you, not even a shoelace. Now, I don't see anything in scripture that says that Abraham was walking in pride because he had defeated this king. I don't, I don't see that. And I don't see anything that says he was in danger of making a compromise here with the king of Sodom. I think it's for us. I think it's for me and maybe for you. Now, in 1 Peter 2.9, we're reminded that Jesus has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Our high priest has extended that priesthood to us, the priesthood of believers. And as priests, we should be doing what Melchizedek did for Abraham. It says, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
once you were a people, not a people, but now you're God's people, new covenant. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, new covenant. So, um, what should we do? We should be, as priests, we should be taking people before the throne, taking them on our hearts. We should be interceding for people that God's laid on our hearts. And we should be reminding one another of the excellencies of the God that we serve. He's the highest there is. He possesses heaven and earth. And as we put one another in mind of who we serve, we know two things. We don't need anything from the world. We don't have to be running after the world. He's our complete satisfaction. And in this window of time that we have left, we need to proclaim these excellencies to the kings of Sodom that come into our Thank you for Jesus who made it all possible. And we pray in his name. Amen.